Sport has the power to change the world. Welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. My name is Boise Kumalo, and my guest today is Ben Pearman. In today's episode, Ben talks about coaching at Michigan State, Detroit City Football Club, and working with Tim Howard. Ben, how you doing, my guy? Good, how are you? I'm good, thanks, man. What, what are you doing with your time right now with this COVID happening? Um, you know, we're trying to prepare for the 2021 season, whether that's identifying scouting players, um, potentially getting the recruitment process going. We're a little bit um, slower, a little bit slower right now, intentionally just kind of waiting to see how some things shake out. But the off season's been long. Um, you know, it's this COVID era. You have to read more books. You spend more time walking around with the dog and relaxing. But, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate. We've been, we've been very healthy. We've been very active. We try to do a lot in the community. But, you know, it's, it is a time of the season where there's not a lot going on. Oh, okay. What books are you reading? Um, I've been reading a couple. There's one called Zonal Marking. Also, the same author wrote one called The Mixer. It's like a tactical historical context book. I've actually really enjoyed it. It goes through the modern era of how tactics have changed from Netherlands to Italy and to France and, and so on. So there's some good insight. It's a historical context book. So you you see maybe like why Cruyff did something like this or why maybe the French did that. And also the pop culture that was kind of going on in it a little bit. So there's there's things from football, but there's also things from their communities and their culture as well. It's it's pretty intriguing. I mean, definitely something that um, I would recommend just for for coaches and, and young footballers just to kind of see where you see the Champions League every Tuesday and Wednesday, right? And you say, oh, well, they're doing this and this and that's awesome. But, you know, for 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of development going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look into that book. You, you spoke a little bit about giving back in the community. What type of work are you guys currently doing in Memphis? Um, you know, my wife and I, we've tried to been involved a little bit with the homeless network. Um, you know, there's a church downtown Memphis that we've tried to help. Um, they, they help do some things like maybe get some un, unfortunate people, either a driver's license or an ID or a bus pass, helps them get job interviews. Um, you know, whether it's even just little things like getting them a sandwich, passing out sandwiches or meals, there's um, there, there's a, a lot of outreach in Memphis for the homeless community. Um, and our weather is pretty good, but this time of year it can be cold. So they might need a little bit of money to get shelter. So there's a lot of things that for that, and that's always been something for, for my wife and I, that we've been, we've been pretty proud to be involved with. Yeah, that's good to hear. It sounds like you have a busy schedule. Now let's talk about how it all started for, for you, man. Uh, when did you start playing soccer? Oh, I mean, probably like most people, I was pretty young. My, my father actually was a, a professional soccer coach. He also coached um, Division I college in Michigan at Oakland University. Um, it's how he met my mom. He was the, the men's and the women's coach. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so my dad used to coach Fort Lauderdale Strikers. So I grew up, my older brother, my older sister, they were playing and I would run up and down the sidelines at three, four years old. And then I got involved and I was pretty, pretty bang average as a player. So I knew by the end of college that I really wanted to get into coaching. I was getting my licenses while I was in college and then 
really from, from the time I finished playing soccer at Michigan State University in 2008, I had already set up that I was going to go be an assistant coach at Western Michigan for a couple of years. And then from there, it's, it's been coaching the last 12, 13 years for me. Yeah, like now growing up, I know like right now it's a, it's a hot topic with the paying to play system. What's your take on that system? You know, it's a tough one for me because I grew up, you know, paying to go to tournaments or the hotels or training or, or whatever. Um, you know, I think you got to look at it twofold. Everywhere in the world, there's at least some sort of, well, I shouldn't say everywhere. Most places in the world, there's at least some sort of pay to play system, even if it's 50 pounds a month for your dues or a hundred bucks for the year. Um, obviously in America, we tend to pay a lot more for the youth. For, for me, it's one of these things where the fewer barriers we can have to get not only our best players on the field, but also we want it to be enjoyable for kids. So even if they're the high-end elite and they're in professional clubs, okay, yeah, they're going to be playing for free or cheap. But even if it's the next two, three, four tiers, can we keep getting more and more of our communities involved? And, and obviously we talk about a lot of the communities in our country are very diverse, whether it's um, the Hispanic and Latino population, we have a, a lot of Arab, we have Asians, we have African, European, you name it, you go through, we're a melting pot in this country. So that's kind of something that has brought a lot of people together. So we really, both from the sporting aspect, but also a community and cultural, cultural philosophy, we, we want to create environments where there's fewer barriers. However, it's easier said than done, say, oh, make it free. Well, we still need good coaches out there. We still need fields. We still need equipment. We still need jerseys, all these things that, that help the operation. So it's, it's finding the best balance. Um, I know that that's been a hot topic for three or four or five years in this country, and they've done presidential elections and they've done all these things. So I think it's definitely something that the, the people way above us are, are trying to, to improve. And hopefully, especially for, for maybe certain communities that are underserved, underprivileged, that we can continue to find aspects to find quality players because there really are good players all over the place. Yeah. What was it like to be coached by your dad? Um, it was interesting. I mean, he, my, my dad more or less back in the late seventies started youth soccer in the state of Michigan. What is the ODP and the national leagues and all this, he got going back in the seventies, um, you know, when soccer wasn't quite as popular. So I always had this, this notion of like, hey, you got to push a little harder. If you want to be good, you got to train. Everything for, since I was three, four, five years old was always technical skill, skill work, ball work. One, one ball, one player, training, training, training. And that really wasn't kind of a, a philosophy back then. So um, it was interesting. He always pushed me. Um, he was very ahead of his game. So he's quite intelligent. So I learned a lot. Um, so I'm very fortunate and, and to be honest, he's, he's always been one of my, my number one fans, whether it was as a player, but also even, even as a coach, he'd come to games and travel and, and be there and watch, watch me sit on the bench. <laughs> That's not good, man. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about ODP. Cause I know a lot of players back in the day used to go to ODP, uh, to, to, to be seen by college coaches or to be seen by the national team. Did you participate in the ODP? Yeah, when I was younger, I played um, on the state team and the regional team at the end of high school. Um, I was fortunate enough to make that that team the last couple of years. So it was a little bit different. Back then, we didn't have this academy set up. Yes. You know, you played high school and then you played your indoor winter season and then you did your, your, your spring season with your club team. 
Um, being from the Detroit area, I played for a club team called Vardar, um, you know, along with the Michigan Wolves club in, in our area, we were the top clubs and we had really good rivalries, but we would play the local team from this city or, or all the way across the state in Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, we would play anybody and everybody, but there really wasn't that, whether it's ECNL or National League or Academy setup, that quite hadn't settled in yet. So ODP was more or less where they tried to bring a lot of the top players in each age group to, to try out and compete and, and then push on and select the national teams from there. So it was something at the time that was pretty exciting and somewhat elite. And, and, and it was, we, we enjoyed it. We look back on it now, there are, with so many MLS youth academies, USL youth academies, there's so many pathways that are different than that ODP model um, that it's maybe become, I don't want to say less important because that's definitely not the case, but it's definitely become an, another alternative avenue to, to achieving the highest level of, of football. What position did you play? Um, I was a midfielder. I, I thought myself, a, a, you know, a little bit of a number 10, a playmaker. I was, I was pretty average. Um, they moved me wide to, to work up and down a little bit. I could cross the ball. That was about it. I, I was really good at arguing with referees. That's, that was my best. <laughs> that was my best quality. Uh, how did Michigan State see, uh, recruit you as a player? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously I was a coach at Michigan State for eight years. So looking back at my time as a player, you know, the way the scholarship situation was at Michigan State, we had to get the, the top players in the state of Michigan. And I was one of the better players in the state of Michigan, um, you know, with four or five other players. And, and we all got recruited by Michigan State. And a um, couple of us went to MSU and I was playing for Vardar. So it was the state cup games and in some of these games against the Wolves. And I think I might've even gone down as a guest player to play in Dallas cup. And um, the now head coach of Michigan state was down there. I got sent off and got a red card and he was like, why am I looking at this kid? He's, <laughs> he's just a hack. So yeah, that was pretty much me as a player, but it, it worked out. And obviously um, I played there for five seasons and then, and then coached there for eight seasons. So 13 years of my life were, were at Michigan State, so I'm very grateful for, for Damon and Joe and everything that that program helped, helped with my development. Yes, I know you kind of touched on it a little bit. Now, growing up, did you have ambitions of becoming a professional soccer player? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody who plays says they want to be a pro, right? You shoot a basketball, you want to be Jordan or Kobe or LeBron, right? You're you're out in the backyard, you want to be Messi, Ronaldo. Um, so there are always these ambitions. Um, I was pretty honest with myself. I worked very hard as a player and trained to be fit and to be the best possible. And I was I was a starter in the Big Ten, but at that time there wasn't a, a, the thriving leagues that we had now. Um, and I was just, I just wasn't good enough, you know? And, and, and it was more of an honesty thing. And I kind of figured that out um, you know, I had plenty of teammates that played in MLS and USL and, and even overseas in Europe. Um, but I just, I kind of figured that out probably 19, 20 years old. And I really put all my effort and energy into coaching and developing in that way. And even my senior year, I got injured and redshirted. Um, and I asked the coaches, let me do anything I can. I'll study film. I'll help organize the scout team. Um, anything you want, I'll train reserves. I'll do anything to just help the team. And that was really more my passion was, was, was coaching um, than, than playing. And I think I was, I love playing. I still love playing, but it just, it's different when, when you're, when you're not as good as some of the guys next to you.
Yeah, you spoke a little bit about being honest with yourself. Because I know some players are not honest with themselves. They, I mean, I know guys who are like 35, they still think they're going to make it to the next level. How important is that to, to, to young players in, in the modern game? Look, I think it's a balance. I think, I, I, you know, one thing I always warn young players, especially is whether it's you go and you try out for a club team and you get cut or you're, maybe a college team doesn't recruit you or you don't get the pro contract you want. Don't let anything get in the way of you being successful. You know, I, I don't think young players should ever have that. Even if you do get cut, use it as a chip on your shoulder to keep driving and pushing. However, there is at some point there, like you said, there's a bit of honesty. Um, you know, there are basic standards for players at every single level. You know, I, I might think, you know, I watched you as a player, you were a top player, but you probably weren't going to sign for Man United. You know, exactly. you, you might have been able to play in MLS. You might have been able to play in these different teams. But so it's a tough one. You don't want to discourage players. You don't want to tell players, ah, you ain't good enough, this, that, and the other, because because only that player can can keep pushing himself on. But there is also that mentality of keeping your goals in a spot where you can go attain them. And I think if you're pushing and you come up short, that's okay. Um, and, and you just know that either you keep pushing to make it or you reset your goals and maybe refilter them. Now, did you graduate from Michigan State? Yeah, so I graduated in 2008. Um, and I actually, like I mentioned, I, I redshirted my senior year. So I finished uh, my degree and I ended up getting a master's and played my fifth year at Michigan State. Um, so I, I've got a couple degrees from, from Michigan State and then obviously, you know, went straight on from there to Western and then Michigan State and also was was head coach of Detroit City for six seasons um, in Detroit. We'll, we'll get into that. What degrees do you have? Um, my my uh, bachelor's degree is in communications and then my master's degree is in kinesiology with like a focus on um, coaching, coaching and education. So it's, it's similar to like a sports management, sports business degree, but a little bit more tilted toward coaching with um, some anatomy and in, in, in psychological coaching as well. Yeah, and I know you said you, you already knew that you wanted to be a coach. Who are some of the people that influence you to wanna to be a coach? Is it your dad or somebody else? Yeah, definitely, you know, my dad, um, you know, when I was at Michigan State, both Joe Baum and Damon Renzing, Joe was the head coach and Damon's now the head coach. They were obviously very influential. Um, you know, one of the other guys that I really enjoyed observing, I was working camps and we played against them and I just had a good respect was, was a guy named Bobby Clark, who was the head coach at Notre Dame. Between my dad and Joe and Damon and Bobby, I just learned a lot as a player and really tried to, to, to take that on to being a young coach and being an assistant and just saying, look, if I go at this as hard as I can and I, and I bring what I can to the table, then I can help other head coaches or other universities or whatever it might be, be successful. Yeah. As a, as a young coach at, at Michigan State and Western, when you went to recruit, what type of players did you look for? Well, when I was at Western Michigan, I, I really had no idea, right? I was playing. And then three months later, I'm, I'm, I'm scouting and looking at players. Um, I remember one of the very first tournaments I drove down to, to Cincinnati to watch a tournament. And what I looked over and a bunch of coaches were leaving to go to a different event. And they said, oh, we're going to go watch Columbus Crew Academy play. This is the first time I was on the road recruiting. So I got in the car, I drove 15 minutes in, in um, 
you know, a team from Cincinnati Academy was playing Columbus Crew, and I watched Will Trap. I said, "Well, I want Will Trap." Well, <laughs> everybody there wanted Will Trap. Right. You know, he was—he had already narrowed it down to two schools. So, yeah, it was really easy for me to watch a a, a bunch of 17, 18 year olds play and figure out that Will Trap was the best player. But, you know, it was one of those things where I learned at Western Michigan you can find players everywhere. Whether I got in the car and drove to Chicago and watched. Um, you know, a, a game in the city, whether it was an academy game, uh, you know, a local club, high school, videos of international players, you name it, there really are good players everywhere. What, what I learned and I learned quickly was there's a fit to everything. So, you know, us at Western Michigan, we were, we were recruiting not just good players, but we wanted good people as well that could help turn around a program who were bought in, willing to go above and beyond, not just settle. Um, and then it, especially for that aspect in college, we wanted players that were good students as well, not kids that we had to hold their hands and not kids that were going to be, be distractions off the field. So, you know, again, I think when you, whether it's professional, college, club, anywhere and everywhere in between, when you have your recruitment strategy, you've got to make sure that there's a philosophy from top down and bottom up that really fit the mold. You, you have your goals as a coach or a director of what you want to achieve on and off the field. And those players, their, their profiles and their personalities really need to fit that. Yeah, I know you spoke a little bit about uh, the international players. And I'm just talking about when you were a college coach. When you were a college coach, did you go watch international players outside of the country or you just watch videos? Um, I didn't. Um, I, I, well, to be fair, we, we went to Canada that's obviously outside the country, but, you know, being an hour and a half from the border, it wasn't as big a deal. Um, but we weren't flying to Europe or South America or Africa. You know, again, I, I referenced the scholarship situations where most of those scholarship money had to be used in state. Um, you know, now there's more and more and more of a trend of the international player. And in my last year, we had a player from Denmark who transferred to us. So it was a little bit more through some of the transfer market, um, You know, but I know a lot of a lot of the colleges now are really focused on the international player. And it comes down to a seeing them in person, which probably was before the COVID pandemic. And number two, trusting the people that are sending through videos and players. So, hey, you know, I might get an email from from a guy that says, hey, watch Boise play. He's really good. He can play in midfield and do this and this. I watch your video. It might be hard to tell what the video level is. But if I trust the guy who sent him through or he sent other players or he gives me a good comparison, then you understand the level. But And then it goes back to that fit, academically, financially, personality-wise, cultural, you, you name it. There's a lot of things that have to really help out in, in that aspect. Now, how did you deal with the player? For example, let's say the player was good, but he was not a good student. He didn't have good academics. How did you deal with that as a, as a young coach? Well, I mean, it's I can give you two sets of answers. When I was at Western Michigan for two and a half years, we had a very strict policy. We took over a program that that wasn't really headed in the right direction, and we needed a culture shock. So if you didn't get your study hall hours in or you, 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 you bagged off a class and you got a, a bad grade, you just simply wouldn't be a part of the team. It was, it was that cut and dry. Um, when we were at Michigan State, I walked into a program and we were – Coming, we were winning academic awards. There was a very good culture of excellence, both on and off the field. So it was a little bit more self-policing. Um, 
again, case by case situations. We had a player, you know, he'd probably be a little bit ticked. I say this, but we had a player named Fatai Lashe who was runner up for rookie of the year, number four draft pick. He was an all American at Michigan state. Um, you know, he decided he was a very good student. He didn't get his, his, his study hall minutes in and we didn't let him practice one time. And that, that was, there was a couple things going on, but it was even the top player in the team has the standards. Um, you know, and obviously Fatai was a phenomenal student. He's got his master's in, in business. So he, you know, it was a one-off little thing for him, but you know, you, you have to hold those standards. And, you know, one of the things we always said is if you can't, if you can't do it in the classroom and you can't meet minimum, minimum standards there, then you might, then you might not make it to the field ever, whether it's training matches, you name it. Right. What was it like to coach under coach Damon at Michigan state? Yeah. I mean, I loved it. Damon and I obviously had a very good relationship. He recruited me to Michigan state. I played for him for five years. Um, even the two years while I was going at Western Michigan, we talked almost every day. We, we shared ideas and I was really just a sponge trying to learn as much as I could. So when I got to Michigan state, um, you know, we were like two pieces in a pod. We got along well. Um, we always, whether it was Kylie Stannard or Cal Wasserman, we always had another high level coach on staff. So we had a really good rapport, really good chemistry. Um, as you know, you're a team, the, the coaching staff's a team. Um, you know, we all got after it in certain ways. Damon does an excellent job of managing a program. He understands what those players need and he can put his arm around them, but also at the same time, every now and then he might have to light a fire under their butt every now and then and say, Hey, you got to get it going. You're not carrying your end of the bargain. So I learned so much from, from Damon, um, not just on the field tactically and in, in how to run sessions, but also in probably even more importantly for my development was how to treat people. Integrity, um, balancing kindness and high standards, but really saying, look, I'm going to do this for the program and I'm doing this for every single one of you. Now I want you guys bought in to, to help me out. And that's, that to me is, is where you get success on the field is when everybody's bought in to, to act as one unit. And, and Damon was, is about as good as that as I've ever met. You also coach at uh, DCLC uh, and you coach some of the top players in, in, in the college game. What was it like to coach there? Yeah, I mean, Detroit City was awesome. Um, you know, just in a football operation, it's, it's one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life because I didn't have to really worry about camps and administration <laughs> and a lot of the things you worry about in, in, in college. It was just training. I got to recruit the players I wanted. I signed the players I wanted. It's quick. You know, it's, it's usually about a four month season. Obviously the fan base and everything with Detroit city is tremendous. It's, it's one of the biggest clubs in the country. So with that type of draw, it was, it was very exciting. My development um, really took off because I was the head coach. I had to manage the team. I had to manage the club, the players, and you referenced, we had a lot of very good players in a summer league setting, which was a little bit tougher to manage than maybe a six, eight, 10 month season. Um, you know, so that was, that was really critical for, for my development and how to learn and, and handle some players. But, you know, as a, as a club, in my experience, I can't speak highly enough. Um, you know, and obviously you co I coached against a lot of good teams like yourself and Eric and in some of these clubs that we really had some good rival rivalries with, not just on the field, but the fans and the banter and really, I thought helped 
change lower league soccer in this country. Um, and I don't think maybe Detroit City and, and the NPSL at the time get enough credit for, for how good the football was, but also really it shows how important it is to support your local team. And, and I think when you see those grassroots communities, now you just see all these models, MLS, USL, League One, you name it, PDL or the League Two, NPSL, you name these leagues, it's, it's putting money and time into your own community, investing in the people and in the, in, in the communities that matter, and then the football takes off from there. Yeah, as a head coach, you, you spoke a little bit about managing the players. Now, as a head coach, how did you hire your assistant coaches? What were um, you looking for? In them? Well, the, the, my first year when I took over, I knew I wanted an, an older, more experienced person. And my first assistant was a, was a guy named Adil, Adil Salmoni. Um, he's from Detroit. He lived in the city. So that was perfect. Number two, he was way more experienced than I was. He was national team coaching experience. Um, he was named youth coach of the year, multiple, multiple times. So to me, it was a no brainer to have a deal involved, um, you know, as his schedule and, you know, he had children, he had to step away. It was okay. Who, what do I find that helps counter me? And I knew that I would be doing a lot of the majority of the player recruitment. I needed a good goalkeeper trainer. I needed a good young coach who could kind of be the, the barrier from myself and those players. You know, if it was something small, the assistant coach could maybe deal with or, or keep a good eye on, or even, even from a, a, a social standpoint, staying in the apartments or whatever it is saying, Hey, this guy, you know, is, is a little bit unhappy. We need to have a chat, whatever it might be, right. or, Hey, this is, you know, uh, one of my best friends, Josh Rogers was an assistant for me forever. He knew what it was like to put that Jersey on the captain's armband on. He knew what it was like to get up at 5.00 AM drive to Cincinnati to play a game in the afternoon. Those things are a little bit tougher than, than some people give credit for. So, you know, it was finding the balance of what I needed as a coach. When I was younger, it was more experienced. When I was more experienced, I needed somebody to help deal with players more hands-on. Yes, and I also know that you coach at DCFC some of the ex-professional players like Max Cameron, uh, KT. How did you deal with coaching those guys? Because, you know, they played at the high level. Now they're playing at the bottom league. They're like, I'm not going to listen to this guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, luckily, again, with guys like Kevin Taylor, Knox Cameron, um, you know, the list, I go on and on with the list. Greg Janicki played in MLS for, you know, these right. players that, that I was fortunate enough to manage with, with Detroit City that had come from MLS and European performances. Again, it's that personality. They were bought in for the team. They wanted it to be about the team and the club and the city. And at the time, you know, my first year uh, with Knox and KT, we were only second year as a club. So we were only averaging two, two and a half thousand fans a game. We weren't quite the, the eight, 9,000 fans a match that we, you know, have come accustomed to these days. So right. they were bought in to just help the project and that made it all easier. Now there were games where I had to manage them and say, Hey, I'm expecting you to do this, this, and this. They say, Hey, look, I'm 30 something years old. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, so that was more of the balance for me. Um, you know, but again, it was, I, they were very gracious. Uh, I remember my first ever game in charge, Knox was on the bench and said, Hey, look, I'm going to look to bring you in towards the end of the first half. Um, 
the player I was going to bring him on for had two goals in the first half. And he just, he, and I was ready to make the sub. And he looked at me and he, he said, what, what are you doing? Yeah. He said, you don't sub a guy off on two goals. I said, well, you're the better player. He said, I don't care. He's got two goals. You leave him in, you know, <laughs> then I saw, and that was my first ever game in charge. And it was, again, I, I was very fortunate to, to have good people around me to help me learn silly little things like that. Right. Now, AFC Anaba versus Detroit City Football Club. What do you think caused all this hypeness rivalry? Well, I think you've got a couple of things. A, the, the results were relatively balanced for the most part. Um, I don't know the data, the, the, the exact results, but it was a pretty even rivalry. You're, what, 20, 30 minutes apart. Um, you know, with social media, it is these days, people can tweet at each other and <laughs> Facebook and talk trash. Um, you know, and, and to be honest, it was probably the two most successful teams. Um, you know, again, I don't have the, the exact standings and stats in front of me, but you know, when you look at it and you see, you know, you watch in the, and not to compare NPSL to the Premier League, but when you see Man United play Arsenal, in one team's first place and one team's second place, that rivalry is going to be like this. Yes, if sir. one team's in sixth place and one's in 11th, it's not as big of a deal. But, you know, that that rivalry is, you know, relating it back to Detroit versus Ann Arbor, that rivalry, you had it all. You had the proximity. You, you had, you know, I wasn't able to coach Michigan State players at, at Detroit City. So I was always coaching against them, whether it was Lansing or Ann Arbor or Grand Rapids. So you, you, you have, and by the way, they're all teammates in college. So you, you had the common familiarity there as well. So, and then the other thing was, is after one season, you did it again the next year. And some of those unbalanced schedules, you might've played those teams three or four times a summer. Right. Uh, you know, so there really wasn't a lot, a lot of love lost, but again, I related it back a few minutes ago to, to the communities. And I, I think those rivalries made it even better. People from Ann Arbor were saying, well, I hate Detroit. We're Ann Arbor. You know, <laughs> people from Detroit were saying, well, you can buzz off. We don't care for Ann Arbor. So it's, that's what rivalries are. And that's, you know, 99 times out of hundred, these rivalries are genuine and, and they're fair. And it's, they're, they're based, they're based on the community and they're based on football. And that, that to me is what really pushes the, the, the edginess between them. Yeah, I know for me as a as a coach of AFC and Abba, I was always excited to come play against you guys because of the fans. Yeah. What was it like for you as a coach to coach in front of those fans, man? Look, I mean, it, it was awesome. At that time, at that time, there were MLS teams hoping to get 8,500 fans a game. Lower league soccer, whether it was USL, there was no League One or, you know, all this stuff. It was Detroit was trendsetter. Um so like you said, every team that we played, they could have been terrible. But for that one-off home game, they were <laughs> signing the best players they could, paying yeah. players off the books. They're bringing in these top, top teams right. to play against Detroit for that one-time chance in front of eight 9,000 fans. So it was fun. It was obviously the excitement, the adrenaline on game day. The other thing that you have to deal with is, is it does change some things. You know, I remember a game we played Lansing absolutely battered them and we we somehow conceded like a penalty in the 96 minute we tied two to two and we hadn't had a good string of results and for our standard and and the fans weren't happy and after every game our our players went over to thank the supporters and our supporters turned their backs on the players and it was 
it was it was weird for me because I'm so focused about what happens on the field. But for me, I felt bad for the players because it's it's my fault as the manager most of the time if we don't win. They're just they're college kids working their tails off. Right. Some of them have jobs. Some of them are getting extra classes in. And yeah, we suffered. We didn't have a great result, but it was real. It was an experience for myself and the players to say, hey, look, if we are going to say about how good this community is and how how exciting this football is, we got to deal with the negatives of, as well. And we turned it on and we had a good season and those guys were great. But, you know, it's it's something that wakes you up. There's there's more to it than just the 90 minutes uh, each weekend. Now, going through everything that you went through, like talking about the DCFC coaching, ex-professional players, uh, do you think those things kind of got you prepared for, for, for your next move to the professional ranks? Because I know right now you currently... Uh, an assistant coach at Memphis. Yeah. So, you know, right now I'm the interim head coach for Memphis 901 FC in the, in USL championship. So second level behind, behind MLS. And, and there were things obviously with Michigan state and Detroit city that really helped me be prepared um, to coach at this level. Um, whether it was on-field training and periodization models um, you know, a big thing, obviously, is knowing the high-level college player, whether I'm coaching them or coaching against them. Um, you know, one thing that I really did have to take that jump with is, is in professional football, that's their lives. If there's an injury, they're not considered. If there's a, a bad week of training, they're not considered. It is, it is it, I don't want to say it's all, oh, it's cutthroat, this and this. It's just, it's, it's tough. Every single day you go to work and play soccer and you have to perform very well. So the player is the asset. So they have to make sure they're getting their sleep, taking care of their bodies with nutrition, all these things that we did with Detroit city that we did at Michigan state. But now if you don't do them and the other 17 guys on the team are, you're going to fall behind and it's competitive. And, and it doesn't matter if you're making hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, X amount of dollars, all that matters is that it, when training starts, are the 18 to 25 guys putting their hats on and going to work and working their tails off. And there's common goals. You want to create a culture of excellence. Um, everybody has the same goal at the end of the weekend to win the match, to make the club the best as possible. But also it's their profession. They are looking out for themselves. Whereas in college and even with Detroit City, there's a little bit more... Uh, you know, take your time. And the club is always number one. The, the, the team, Michigan State's always number one, Detroit City, the supporters. In professional football, it, you have to balance the player and the club. And, and, and that's where culture is so big. Um, that's where an identity and philosophies are so big. And really the communication from the, the coach and the managerial staff to the players is so important, dictating those um, identities and philosophies of how we're going to be successful. But in the end of the day, you know, whether you're 15, 16 years old or 40 years old, when you roll out on that pitch and you train, it is, it's all out, all go all the time. And you hear it and you see it on these TV shows and these things about how important training is, but that is the end all be all is what you do to get ready for the weekend. Yes. Now as an interim coach, what is your role? And I'm basing this because at, at DCFC, you kind of hired your own staff. 
Now, as an interim coach in a professional setup, do you hire your own staff or you get other people helping you out? Yeah, so right now, um, I went from being the assistant coach to head coach. So we're in the off season. Um, you know, we have fitness coach and goalkeeper coach and physio and, and, and team administrator and kit man. So we have a full staff, um, but obviously with our season not starting until probably May, mid-May, um, the recruitment and the, and the coach hire and, and assembling the staff hasn't really happened yet. Um, but for me as the, as the current head coach, you know, the last four games of the season, um, the, the directive from, from executives and management and our directors was we want to win games. And, you know, we lost one game, but we played all playoff teams. Um, you know, we, we beat the other teams. The last two games of the season, we played really well. Then the off season happens and it's, you know, mainly because of this COVID era of uncertainty we're all dealing with. Um, you know, there's a longer off season. We're waiting to get prepared for this 2021 season. Um, but once that happens, whether, excuse me, whether I'm full-time head coach or the assistant coach, um, we'll be gearing up full go for this season. There's the recruitment, the identification process to assemble the roster, whether it's, you know, 18, 22, 25 guys on their team. Um, you know, no matter how you do it, professional soccer, putting a roster together is, is tricky. Um, and then getting ready from there, creating our models of training to prepare ourselves to be ready, whether it's May 1st, 8th, 15th, whatever our first game is, making sure we're as fit and, and technically and tactically prepared to, to win games um, starting in May. So when you were an assistant coach, and like I said, you are now an interim coach. When you were an assistant, do you find yourself behaving different now that you are so-called a head coach? Yes, definitely. I mean, look, one, one thing is, is that in the end of the day, these players want to play. So if they're not playing, they're going to say, what, what can I do to get on the field? Some of them might say, oh, well, Ben's the assistant coach, buddy, buddy, we, he's going to put yes. me on the, on the field. Well, in the end of the day, it's, it's 11 players or 18 in the, in the game day roster. Um, the first meeting I had with the team is I said, look, there's 23 guys in this locker room. 12 of you come Saturday night are going to hate me. Five of you come Friday morning when we announce the roster are really going to hate me. So it's easy to be the assistant coach or it's easier. Um, you know, you can develop players, you can put your arm around them, you can push them a little bit. Right. But, but when you're the manager, when you're the head coach, you have to pick the team, you have to deal with everything that comes with it. So I pick a play, I pick a team and a player's not into it, I have to look at him and say, hey, Boise, you didn't make the roster this week because you're not doing this, this, and this. And I've got to make sure that you're getting bought in to do it next week so we can go win more games. Uh, so it's a little bit different for sure. But in the end of the day, these guys, these guys want to play and they know winning is the most important thing. So, so it's relatively easy to get guys bought in for a common goal. But in the end of the day, if you have 23 guys on the roster, there's going to be 12 guys that are tick come kickoff time. Yes. What is it like to work under Tim Howard, who is a legend in the game? Yeah. So, so Tim Howard is our sporting director. Um, he's in charge of all football operations. Um, look, he's brilliant, right? He's, he's, he's as sharp as they come. Um, you know, one of his other jobs is also working as a, as an analyst for the Premier League for NBC. So, you know, being being the American analyst for the top league in the world, 
you don't just come around that stuff with ease. You know, he's, he is a very sharp, clever, astute soccer mind. He's also, he's a player, right? right. He's played anywhere and everywhere in this world. He understands what footballers need. He understands what clubs need. He also understands what clubs need in regards to pop culture, um, communities, you, you name it. He's got a very good pulse of, of what's going on in football in this country and really all over the world. Um, you know, for me, the development I've had is tremendous because he'll come in and say, hey, look at this restart we did at Everton. He'll come in and say, hey, communicate with the coaching staff at Colorado Rapids. They're his top friends. They're doing some of these patterns and watch this training video. And this is what they've done. So I've had access to things that I would never have access to in the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a sponge. I'm taking it all in. Um, but he also understands there are directors, there are coaches, there are players, there's support staff, there's front office staff, there's janitors that sweep the floor that are just as important as the center forward banging in the penalty kick that are just as important as the president making it, you know, so he understands that it's a team operation. Um, and he's been around all these different avenues. Um, you know, so his leadership's really been, been huge for me for, for my development, but also he's a competitor, man. He want, he hates losing. I mean, it, it makes him want to vomit and, and it's infectious. And that's the culture you want is that every single day in training, you lose, you're furious until the next chance you get to go win. So, you know, the, that's the type of culture of excellence we want here at Memphis 901 FC. Um, and there's really no better person to, to lead that front line, um, you know, pushing that level of excellence for, from our end. Now, is he a different person when he gets on the field compared to the office? Oh, definitely. You have to be, right? You know, look, and, and look, let's be candid. Goalkeepers have a little bit different <laughs> mentality as is. So... <laughs> So when he's in goal, it is his goal. And he is, he, if you're not doing your job and you're a left back and you're out of position, you'll hear it. I look, my first training session with him, um, our kit man accidentally picked up some of the cones yes. uh, while I was over here talking and he lit me up and was like, where's the cones, you know? And, and that's the standard he has. He's very respectful. He's very, he is really great at, in, you know, trying to give confidence to his back line and his teammates um, and it is unique, right? He's the sporting right. director, but he's the goalkeeper. So he's everybody's boss, but he's also a player. He was excellent at saying, look, when I'm a player, I'm a player. I'm a footballer. I want to win on Saturday against Charlotte. That was his goal. Um, but he, his intensity, I'm telling you, it was first time in a preseason game, I was looking at him and I said, okay, this is going to be tremendous, not just for my development, but these players need a little jump. And we also had another player named Jose Baxter, who was, I think, the youngest player ever to score for Everton. Definitely the youngest player to score against Liverpool in the Premier League. But he played at Everton with, with Tim Howard. And the intensity that those guys bring, it, it's unbelievable. And I think that's something we as young Americans who maybe potentially have had things a little bit easier in our journeys to, to becoming high-level footballers or coaches um, is bringing it. It's like, it's almost a fear to fail. And, and Tim Howard's talked about this, that if, if he didn't make the save or he wasn't the top goalkeeper or he didn't train well enough, his fear to fail was beyond anything else. And he told me a story, you know, on Saturday night, 
you know, maybe he makes a mistake for Everton and he lets a bad goal in. On Sunday at the re- re- regeneration session, he would train full go. I, he said, if I messed up, I'm full go the next day. Nobody's ever going to take my spot. And what did he do it for 15 years in the Premier League or whatever it was? So, you know, that's the intensity that, that I love to see. And, and yes, to answer your question, the, the difference between director Howard and goalkeeper Howard. But, but look, he's, he's the secretary of defense on the field. He's an incredible, incredible, kind and selfless human being off the field. Um, you know, so it was, it was a good balance. But, hey, look, he, he ain't ever going to let anybody get in his way of winning some games, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, those are interesting stories, man. And I like to hear those stories. Now, as a professional coach, I know when you were at Michigan State, DCFC, you guys uh, recruited international players, blah, blah, blah. You watched the videos. Now, as a pro coach, how do you recruit your players? Yeah, so it's, um, th- th- again, there's so many different avenues. Agents are a huge part of this. Agents introduce their clients and say, hey, here's this guy. Again, the one thing that's really similar to colleges is the, not necessarily the process, but the concept of having a fit right? There needs to be a fit from the player in the club, philosophy, identity, outlook. We also might have 18 guys sign and say, look, we don't have any international spots and we need a left back. Mm. Well, Boise might be the best player in the world. And he says, Hey, I want to be, be at Memphis, but we don't need a midfielder and we don't need an international player. We need a domestic left back. So there's, there's fit like that. How we go about it, you know, USL, USL championship has a lot of very good players. You know, that's our market saying, Hey, we can sign this player and this player and this player. And they know the league, you know, Tim Howard, he's been around Europe. He brought in a couple um, you know, imports from the UK, both of them top, top players for us. Um, my knowledge of the college player, we sign rookies. We'll sign maybe players that were at Michigan state that, you know, Zach Carroll, he won a USL cup with red bulls captain of of reno top team in the west his contract runs up we go all in for him you know we had players from trinidad in jamaica so there's scouting networks all over um there's no one kind of who you know but also who you can trust a little bit like we said who's introducing the players um but in the end of the day in the end of the day it it comes back to finding those players that are a good fit for your club and in your your club's philosophies Yeah, uh, Benny, with everything that's going on now with uh, Black Lives Matters, what's your take on it? Look, I think there's there's the concept of, of Black Lives Matter movement, just the saying Black Lives Matter. Um, I've referenced how I've worked for Joe Baum and Damon Renzing and, and, and Tim Howard, white people, black people, different backgrounds. It The same message has come from all three of them. You need to be respectful of other people. And, and in this modern era it's 2021 it doesn't matter if you're white it doesn't matter if you're black it doesn't matter if you're female whatever is going on in your life you need to treat other people with respect and in how important and strong some of these messages were and are yes. is just vital vital to our communities um i'm not saying you know boise me and you are going to agree on everything you might be a united fan i might be this you know, but we we're different But in the end of the day, we're human beings. And the end of the day, we're, we're soccer people. We all want to go out on the pitch. But this world in general, we need to treat people with respect. We need to be respectful of other people's ideas. 
even if you disagree with them. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of some of the actions that our team has taken. Um, you know, there's a lot of disgusting things going on in this world, right? right and it, right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter where you've come from. Um, you know, my experiences are different than yours. And, and, and as a spiritual man, I want to be there for you and people that are black, people that are Arab, um, people that are Hispanic, unit, white, black, men, women. But, but I think it goes back to where, how we live our lives. And if, and if I can't be respectful of another person, that, that you, you really just don't belong in, in these communities. So relating it back to our team, you know, our, our team, we did a march. Um, not sure if you know this, in Memphis is our National, National Civil Rights Museum for the whole country. Um, and our team did a march to that museum. We went to the museum. We, we learned a lot about very specifically um, black people in this country and going the slavery in, in the historical context of that. And, and personally, it, it's, it's eye-opening. And one thing that it helps is to say, look, Boise's different than I am. Uh, that guy's different than I am. That guy's different than Boise. That woman has had different experiences. And you know what? Maybe I've had a different background than this person or this person. So I, if I'm going to say we need to go out there and respect people and treat people well, um, you know, then I need to understand maybe some of the things that, that other people, specifically Black people, have gone through. Um, you know, in, in, in our club, we talked about doing more than wearing a T-shirt doing more than, than taking a knee. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I referenced in our community was, was the homeless network. You know, Memphis is approximately 80% um, black population. And, and I I've, I've, was in Detroit for six seasons. Um, you know, a very, a very, very diverse community. I've been around diversity. I went to Michigan State, one of the most diverse universities in the world. I've been around, and we're, we're all soccer right? There, it's such a global game. We've been around it. My experiences are different than everybody else. Yeah. And, and one thing that I've, I've really focused on, I, I remember in Detroit, we had, a, we had a really unfortunate incident playing a team. Um, you know, for me, the language we use, the way we treat people, whether it's um, Black, Arab, Hispanic, LGBTQ, there needs to be respect for others. And, and in our club and with the teams that I coach, certain things just don't fly. And I think we're at the stage in 2021 where, where people, people know what is okay and what isn't. But it's going above and beyond saying, look, it's not just knowing that Boise is this, this great, incredible human being, knowing a little bit more about him and why he's so passionate about some of the things that he does. And that's not just Boise, right? There's, there's hundreds of thousands of people that we interact with on a yearly basis. And I think it all stems back to if, if you're treating people with respect, then those conversations can start to happen. Then those conversations are saying, hey, Boise, what do we need to do in this world to make this world a better place? And that's something that, you know, and I'm a little bit long-winded answer, but that's something I, I, I hope we can do in, in 2021 and moving forward is, 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 is really live a life where we can help each other. And it shouldn't matter what, you know, white, black, gay, straight, soccer, basketball, you know, Yes. You know, I, I, I made a comment once I said the only the only people I have a hard time uh, 
given my utmost respect to our referees. So in, in 2021, I'm going to try to stop being prejudiced against referees. But, you know, in, in all honesty, I think that should be our mindset is how we, we're all we're all similar. Right. right. We all we all bleed red blood. We all are breathing the same oxygen. Why don't we why don't we treat each other a little bit better? Um, agree to disagree. You know, like I said, that oh, so many different backgrounds, but you know, in, in regards to, to some of the things that happened in 2020, these horrific, horrific events. And, and if we can use some things in our society to try to help improve our communities and, and, and improve the way we treat each other, then maybe that's the, 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 fine, the, the, the fine writing in it all. Vinny, I really appreciate you saying all those things, man. That that sounds like <laughs> you no, thought about this, you've been through it, you've seen it, so that, that's good. Now let's get back to soccer here, man. Yeah. What's the season looking like for 2021 for Memphis? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, there's there's just a lot of uncertainty in regards to 2021 in general. Um, you know, the biggest thing from the league is they announced the 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 potential of, of playing in four divisions. Um, you know, those haven't been announced yet, but you know, a 32 game schedule, um, you know, my guess is, is probably you'll get like a division of eight that will be in and you'll play seven opponents a few times, like four times each type thing. So my guess would be, that would be regional, but, but again, it's it, nothing, nothing's been publicized. Um, you know, I think they're targeting in between, May 1st, May 15th type kickoff, um, you know, obviously with everything that's been going on the last, you know, almost full year now um, with, with the COVID pandemic is, is trying to be as safe and as humanly possible and get our supporters in, in the stands. And if that's something that, you know, the vaccine's been, been really pushing on and seems like trends are getting better. I'm as far from a medical expert as there is, but um, you know, it, it's looking like there's some positivity on the horizon. And I think, you know, relating it back to our previous conversation, I think that's what we need in this world is, is more positivity, more things that we can rally around. And, and look, we talked about rivalries. If it's Memphis supporters hating Birmingham or Atlanta or them hating us, then that's all right. You know, supporting your club, um, you know, and, and putting the best product on the field is, is, is humanly possible. And, and for me and in, in my immediate goals, that's what we're doing now is, um, you know, trying to just get ourselves as prepared as possible to, to put the best team on the field um, with the best physiological, tactical, and, and technical models of winning games and doing it the right way, playing some good progressive football, you know, outworking our opponent. And like we referenced, being good human beings and treating people with respect, even, even referees. Yes, yeah, I know you're a busy man. Last question for you. Who is the best player you ever played against? And who is the best coach you ever coached against? Um, when I was 16 or 17, I was playing for the Region 2 regional team down in uh, Chula Vista, California. And we played the under-20 national team. And Freddie Adu, <laughs> that we lost, we, so we lost two to one. I was like set 16, 17. He was whatever you know, 15 type thing. He scored two goals with his head and he's like five foot three. We couldn't get near him. We couldn't get near him. Right. And so as a player, that was the best player I ever was up against, like just too good for that, for that moment. And it was the under 20 Nash team. So there was a lot of top end players, um, you know, 
as a coach, the best coach I've coached against, um, you know, my first, my first game, I'm going to give two answers. My first game okay, that's fine. as head coach of, of Memphis 901, we played Louisville city. Um, John Hackworth is the manager. He does an incredible job. They beat us four to one. Um, the first 20 minutes we were chasing shadows and I put the team in the wrong shape. Um, I messed it up. We were down 2-0. We were fortunate enough to have one of those little water breaks halfway through. We changed shape. We did a couple of alterations, and we really got on top of them. And then almost in, in, in John Hackworth fashion, the second half, he moved some pieces around, and I was a little late to counter that. And we ended up losing 4-1. to We played pretty well, but it was a learning lesson for me. Um, you know, I'm always prepared. I work very hard, but but there's, some, there's a little bit of guile to it. And in, 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 in Hack's been around the block so many times he does a great job with his teams that was one where i was like oh i was very impressed by by the opponent manager the other one um when i was with detroit city we played a club called venezia who's a serie b team and their manager is Filippo Nzaghi. um and now he's in the Serie A, I believe with benevento in in uh that was pretty cool we actually beat him we beat him um two nil two one type thing. So that was pretty cool. Um, you know, it was a friendly and it was preseason for them. So they rotated their guys. So it wasn't, it put it this way. It definitely didn't stand out for him as much as it did for me, but it was right. very fun for me to coach against Inzaghi um, and to win and, and to do things the right way. Like we could have sat in and taken some things, but we went all out and we went aggressive and, and, and it was fun to just do that and kind of put a little bit of a show on. Yeah. Benny, thanks for, for your time, man. I really appreciate it, man. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, good luck this season. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Thanks for listening to Telling Our Football Stories, and thanks to Benny for sharing his story with us. Have a great day.